everyone, and bienvenidos to a special bonus episode of the Paseo Podcast. Keep up with us and let us know what you think of this episode at Paseo Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you want to follow me, I'm at JS De Leon on Twitter. That's J S D E L E O N. You can also pitch a story or volunteer with the podcast by reaching out to us on our website, baselmedia.org. To watch the interview portions of our episodes, check out our YouTube channel. Just type in Basel Podcast and we'll pop right up. While you're there, like our videos and subscribe to our channel. Help us get to 100 subscribers, por favor. We just started the YouTube channel a few weeks ago, so we would really appreciate the support. You'll notice this episode sounds a bit different than what I normally do, and that's because from time to time, we'll share audio from events relevant to the Latina community or interviews with guests that aren't Puerto Rican. Sometimes with our bonus content, I may or may not even be the one interviewing. Either way, it's always quality listening. For this bonus episode, we're interviewing the representative of the 4th District of Illinois, Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia. Now, if you're from Chicago, you're no stranger to who Chuy is, especially his signature mustache. He's been active for a while in the city of Chicago and prides himself on being a champion of progressive values. If you're hearing his name for the first time, don't worry, because we'll delve into a bit of his background from him setting roots in Chicago, running for elected office at the local level, and choosing to run for a congressional seat. We even get a fun listener question in at the end that I think y'all will appreciate. I know I did. We're gonna to talk to him about the role he's playing in legislation at the federal level that can impact Puerto Rico's colonial, financial, and environmental status, his views on the future of the Democratic Party, and his relationship with the squad, which includes a few members of Congress, among them being representatives like Boricua Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and Chicago native Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. Now, it's not every day you get the chance to talk about this stuff with a member of Congress, so we really appreciate Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia for giving us the time today to discuss these topics and more. Again, we know Chuy isn't Puerto Rican, but after you listen to this episode, I'm sure you'll understand why he's always welcome to the Puerto Rican barbecue. Let's jump into the interview. Congressman, welcome to the Paseo Podcast. How are you? Uh, thank you uh, for having me, Josh. I'm uh, doing well. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I've been uh, engaging the uh, Puerto Rican Boricua community uh, since I was in college, actually, maybe a little bit before that. And of course, I'm married into the family. I have uh, three uh, children uh, and of course, uh, seven grandchildren. So uh, we're part of the tapestry. For people that are listening outside of Chicago that may not be familiar with you, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. What should our audience know about you? I came to Chicago in 1965. I was turning 10 years old. I grew up in only two barrios, uh, the Pilsen community, and then as it expanded westward, Little Village. I identify as a community uh, activist. Uh, always been passionate about what's going on in my neighborhood, in the greater neighborhood across town. I believe in Latino uh, unity, Latino panism. Uh, I strive for social justice. And uh, since I began getting involved in politics, I've always identified as a progressive independent Democrat, even today in Congress. Uh, that characterization and fighter for social justice still applies. Mm. We normally ask our guests uh, what part of Puerto Rico they're from, but I'm going to switch it up. What part of Mexico is your family from? 
I'm from the northern state of uh, Mexico, the state of Durango. It's where Pancho Villa comes from. So we have uh, someone quite famous so who hails from that uh, state, one of our most important revolutionaries uh, in Mexican uh, history. My father came here in the late 40s, uh, part of the Bracero program. We reunited with him in 1965 after my mother and my three siblings and I got our green cards and came to the United States directly to Chicago in February in the middle of a snowstorm. That was my homecoming to Chicago. <laughs> so let's talk about a, a little bit about your district just to give people a sense of geography. Um, so you, you are a congressman out of Illinois, the great state of Illinois. Um, what what, what uh, is the geography of your district? What does that encompass? So the district is essentially three areas. Uh, the northwest side uh, that comprises, uh, you know, the Paseo Boricua going into Hermosa, uh, further north into Albany Park. Uh, so that whole uh, concentration of uh, Latinos on the northwest side. And then we go into the suburban uh, communities, uh, starting in Elmwood Park, going out to uh, Stone Park and Melrose Park, and then looping back around North Riverside, Berwyn, and Cicero. So there's that southwest uh, suburban community. And then, of course, the greater southwest side of the city of Chicago. This is the historical home uh, of yours. Uh, truly, uh, there's an estimated population of about 735,000 people in this area. It's a Latino majority district. Aside from Mexicanos and Boricuas, uh, there are other uh, Latin Americans, especially from Central America. And then there are also sprinklings of German, Irish, German and Polish uh, immigrants in the district as well. There are about 55,000 Boricuas who live in my district, including the one at home here. Mm, man, my my better half. <laughs> That's super diverse. How do you so how do you balance that coming from uh, Mexican culture, like dealing with the different nuances and demographics? Like I think a lot of people, when they think about electing someone to office, they're looking for someone that that looks like them, that has those shared cultural experiences. You know, for people that you represent that aren't Mexicano or aren't Latino, like how do you give space to listen to those needs and to adequately serve those constituents? So the uh, underlying characteristic of the people of the 4th District is overwhelmingly their working class. So issues of uh, minimum wage and the quality of work, uh, schools and the resources that children uh, that schools have to educate our children and building uh, educational communities throughout the district are some of the things that people uh, care about. The district is also very progressive. It supports uh, increasing the minimum wage that supports Medicare for all. Uh, it has a very progressive uh, thrust and bent to it. So representing the district is quite an honor. Uh, everywhere I've gone in the district, I've felt the uh, welcome. Uh, people are ready to talk issues and I get the uh, mail and uh, uh, calls and all kinds of communications from throughout the district. Uh, it's a great district to represent. It is one of the most progressive districts in uh, the country. 
And uh, it also is one of the youngest we have among the largest the population of young people uh, anywhere in the country. So in many respects, it's a microcosm of the country and of the future of the country. And of course, the large Latino majority in the district, it's about 67 percent Latino, uh, makes it a fantastic district, uh, of course, and its people to represent in uh, in Washington, D.C. I'm really glad when you answered that question, you started off with working class people. It reminds me, you know, I, I had asked the question through the lens of like culture, ethnicity. So like for you to answer with putting first and foremost working class people, I think that's for people listening. You know, I think that's a really good mentality to have, like looking at race and ethnicity while important. You know, we, we have to look at policy from a, a class issue. And it reminds me of like Martin Luther King and Poor People's Campaign, you know, really bringing together working class people, talking about the importance of unions. Like that's when like fear really set in for his detractors, when he was bringing people across the spectrum uh, of identity and background to kind of uh, organize under under one banner. Um also reminds you of Rainbow Coalition. It reminds me of you know organizing here in Chicago. And I'm gonna I'm gonna connect this. I promise you with my my next question because uh, you were brought in uh, into elected office through a, a coalition. Um, a lot of people point to that wave of elected officials from the Harold Washington campaign that brought in people like yourself and Luis Gutierrez. Um, and like kind of fast forwarding to today, specifically focusing on you and Luis Gutierrez, the former congressman that was representing your district before, um, I was reading this in these Times article and they referred to Luis as the MOK of Latinos, uh, which I thought was an interesting tagline. Um, and it kind of sets the bar kind of high for another Latino stepping into into that district to represent it. So, I mean, can you give us a little like breakdown like what was it like stepping into this role that was held by yeah. someone like Luis Gutierrez because he was in the world he, he held he held that seat for a number of terms yeah uh, 26 years that uh Luis served in the uh, U.S. Congress uh, yeah. and of course he uh, you know earned a reputation of being uh, a fearless uh, fighter uh, especially for uh, immigrants. Mm-hmm. So uh, Luis and I uh, have a long history because we both uh, ran for office uh, t- together uh, going back to 1984 when we both ran for committeeman. Uh, he ran against Dan Rostenkowski in uh, that part of uh, the district. And uh, we were elected together uh, to the city council, we helped give Harold Washington uh, a majority and to break the deadlock of the white obstructionist block that was hindering his administration uh, at the three year mark, almost three fourths of a term uh, in uh, into his mayoralty. So uh, we have a lot in common. We've been great friends. Uh, we have fought many battles together. We work very closely in the Chicago City Council. I think Harold Washington had a great place in his heart uh, for us and the difference that we made. And we truly, I think, through our victories came to uh, embody what coalition is like in Chicago, bringing 
together the two largest uh, ethnic groups, the African-American and Latino communities banding together with progressive whites, with women's movements, with the LGBTQ community. Uh, We we voted together on Chicago's first and historic human rights ordinance uh, to protect people uh, in the LGBT community against discrimination. And of course, we've always had a close relationship uh, with respect to uh, Puerto Rico, the diaspora across the country. And of course, uh, you know, it goes without saying a family. Uh, Both of us are married to Boricuas. The difference is that I am uh, Mexicano, Uh, but we've had this great relationship. So uh, being the successor uh, to someone who served in the Congress for that long was actually pretty seamless and a great, great uh, experience. As you know, Luis uh, came to uh, decide that uh, it was time to move on. Uh, you know, with a short time before uh, the filing uh, deadline, uh, he endorsed me enthusiastically. We announced my run uh, together. And of course, uh, I was able to receive the support uh, overwhelmingly of people throughout the district. And of course, many elected officials, many community activists because of our common history of fighting uh, for good causes for many, many years. So I feel privileged to have been his successor. We continue to have a great relationship. Uh, we are uh, in touch about issues on the island and across uh, the country in, in the uh, Puerto Rican diaspora. And of course, we also share very closely our commitment to uh, advancing the immigrant community, pan-Latinoism, and a sense of building coalitions at the national level as well. So I'm proud to call him my friend. Uh, we chat very frequently um, uh, you know, on issues and goings on, sometimes on the bochinche that's happening <laughs> in the community or on the island as well. I have to confess, uh, we have a great relationship. So uh, I'm truly honored to have been uh, his uh, successor in the U.S. Congress. And I received great support from Boricuas throughout the Northwest side and other parts of the district as well. First off, I'm glad you worked in a bochinche there. Uh, I thought you were going to say chisme. I thought you were going to say chisme. Uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, And just looking at the relationship that you and Luis have, it it reminds me of this saying that I heard for the first time on Paseo Boricua, which is Boricua y, y Mexicano luchando mano y mano. And, you know, speaking of luchando, fighting, like uh, looking at your decision to run for Congress and looking at um, your mayoral campaign when you ran against uh, the former uh, mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, when he was seeking a second term, uh, you had two big options in front of you. You could have ran, you could have run again to to become Chicago's mayor or you could have run for Congress. What what went into your decision to say, you know what, I'm going to campaign to to represent uh, people in in Illinois at the federal level? What, 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 What went into that decision? Uh, Well, uh, first of all, uh, Donald Trump uh, had been president for nearly uh, two years. It was a disastrous uh, administration. The attacks against uh, the Mexican community, against immigrants, against everything uh, Latino and seeking to make us the scapegoats of 
problems and challenges the country was facing was a great motivator. I had a sense that Democrats could win a majority in uh, 2018 and uh, that we could change the course of the country's uh, history uh, and that it would be a part of building for a big win uh, in uh, 2020. Uh, and of course, uh, all of that has happened. Uh, you know, Luis was uh, also, uh, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, his life and uh, his uh, service to uh, the fourth district over a 26 uh, year uh, period. And he felt that this was uh, the right timing. So um, it made lots of sense to be able to uh, run for the office, to run on a coalition banner, and of course, to advance a very progressive agenda uh, as to why I wanted to be a congressman of the uh, 4th District. The bread and butter issues of uh, raising the minimum wage of Medicare uh, for all, of doing an infrastructure bill, uh, of rebuilding uh, Puerto Rico uh, in, in the wake of the uh, uh, hurricanes and other natural disasters made uh, a lot of sense. And um, that's uh, what was going on at that time. I feel that I've, I'm very uh, fortunate to be the congressman for the past two plus years during a time where we experienced government shutdowns, where we had to impeach Donald Trump not only once but twice, and where we were able to win uh, the Senate and the White House at the same time and to stand uh, in the throes of history right now with the potential uh, to bring about great policy changes that will truly help the people of our country uh, in the middle of a pandemic. And of course, uh, it, with a uh, positioning that uh, we can be a transformative Congress in concert with the White House and that the policies that we enact in these times will have pro profound consequences, good consequences for the children uh, and children and grandchildren uh, of our generation. So I'm excited to be uh, addressing the issues of education and health and nutrition and you know shelter and housing, and of course the committees that I'm on in Congress. But that was the environment that led to my decision that this is something I was excited to do. And of course, uh, I feel that uh, even though I've only been in Congress for two years, I feel like a seasoned veteran and I feel like I've been in Congress for at least a decade with everything that has gone on. Mm, no, I bet. I'm sure a month feels like a year and the way our politics works uh, nowadays. Absolutely. Um, you, you brought up Donald Trump. I mean, I think people listening to this show are, are very familiar with his outlook and his administration's outlook on Puerto Rico and the people that, that inhabit and live on that island. Um, so looking at the Trump administration's uh, outlook on, on Puerto Rico, even, I mean, previous president administrations, you know, the, the, the relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico, uh, you know, for lack of a better term or phrasing, uh, leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, in my opinion, and I think there's a lot that the United States, a lot, a lot that can be uh, improved in that relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico. Um, so I, I did want to like, I know you you have your hands in a number of things uh, in Congress right now, but I wanted to focus this episode since we highlight on highlight Puerto Rican stories to really focus on um, policy uh, legislation that's kind of in the works right now at the federal level that you could shed some light on for our listeners. So um, I, I, before we started recording, I told you 
I really want to approach our conversation like myself as a student, you as a teacher. We're going to go through some of these rapid fire because I know we don't have a lot of time. Um, but sure. like, like I said, you have uh, your hands in a number of things in Congress right now in the House of Representatives. You're on the Natural Resources Committee, the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. You're on the Financial Services Committee, all demanding a lot of your time. Um, I want to focus specifically on the Natural Resources Committee and how that relates to Puerto Rico. Um, could you explain what is the Natural Resources Committee that you're the vice chair of and um, what authority or, or power does does it have on Puerto Rico? Absolutely. So first, uh, I'm very happy to have been elected the vice chair of the Natural Resources Committee just two weeks ago. The committee has jurisdiction over issues regarding environmental justice, indigenous people, and the jurisdiction over policy regarding Puerto Rico and other territories. Just last week during the committee hearing, for example, I submitted a formal concern from the Salvemos Jauca Beach Committee and other community members, including Representative Gutierrez, uh, about concerns that the building of a new hotel in that part of the island is going to uh, prevent people from accessing the beach and the natural resources uh, that the island should have access to. Later this month, the committee, for example, is going to have a hearing titled Building Back Better in the U.S. Territories. Here, we're going to be talking about the money that Congress appropriated for the reconstruction of Puerto Rico, for the infrastructure, for the housing, uh, all of the other needs. The uh, um, clinic in Vieques that was destroyed by uh, Hurricane Maria that hasn't been rebuilt. All of these issues are critical to the future of Puerto Rico, to building an infrastructure that's resilient, that takes into account the assets of the island uh, that should be done for the benefit of the people. And that is one of the biggest priorities that we are going to be undertaking. Uh, we want to make sure that the what, almost $18 billion that were approved by the U.S. Congress actually reach the uh, mayors and the municipalities and the people, and that everything from the electrical uh, power system on the island is rebuilt and rebuilt with an eye towards sustainability and the future so that it doesn't happen again. Uh, the committee has power over Puerto Rico, uh, speaking, you know, over control of uh, everything uh, uh, regarding the island, including, for example, uh, the uh, PROMESA bill, uh, the uh, board, uh, the junta that was appointed, uh, the uh, conflicts of interest on that board, and of course, the huge debt that the island has been saddled with by Wall Street interests who are seeking to, you know, indebt the population of Boricuas on the island for such a long time that essentially uh, would prevent uh, the economy from ever recovering and becoming a sustainable economy for the people of Puerto Rico, and even to attract additional investment onto the island. So we are working to ensure that there is a community-driven recovery process for Puerto Rico, that civil society and not just politicians and bureaucrats 
make those decisions. And we're also dealing with, you know, the self-determination of the island in the future, uh, you know, keeping all of the political options front and center uh, for the people that uh, they should drive and that they should engage in. Uh, so we deal with uh, so many aspects of Puerto Rican life uh, and society on this committee. And that's why I work hard to get on the committee and feel very rewarded to now be the vice chairman of that committee, along with our chairman, Raul Grijalva, another ally and someone who also supports the Puerto Rican people in improving their lot. Mm. You, you mentioned, um, well, you mentioned La Junta, but I want to get to that in a, in a second. Um, looking at another act in Congress, I just want some clarity. Uh, I, know, I know you've mentioned the Community Driven Recovery for Puerto Rico Act. Is that related at all to your work on the Natural Resources Committee and Build Back Better plan, or is that something different? They're connected. Okay. Uh, we're talking about uh, money that's been uh, allocated already for Puerto Rico and its reconstruction, money that was held up by uh, Donald Trump with a uh, capricho, a vendetta against seeing the island uh, receive the money that Congress appropriated. And that's the power of Congress and the will of Congress. He blocked those resources from reaching the island. We want uh, transparency. We want accounting. We want the money to go to the purposes that it was designated. The Build Back Better is one more additional opportunity to ensure the viability and the rebuilding of the island and the uh, prospering of the island in uh, the future. We want to make sure that we're paying attention to all of these issues. A case in point of what's possible for Puerto Rico in the uh, Rescue Act that we approved uh, last week in Congress and that the president signed uh, toward the end of the week, we've changed the reimbursement rate for Medicaid reimbursement on the island so that the reimbursement rates are what the states receive here in the mainland so that uh, the people on the island are not shortchanged as it relates to resources for health care. That's the type of equity that we are seeking to bring to the island and its governance. Uh, so when we talk about Build Back Better, we're talking about what economic stimulus, what economic development endeavors we ought to be undertaking to ensure that people in Puerto Rico have the opportunity to work, to study, and to enjoy their life as they rebuild the island with an eye toward sustainability and not simply build it back the way that uh, experts on the mainland or bureaucrats think it ought to be rebuilt, but to consult with actors in the grassroots throughout the island and have that plan emanate from the bottom up and to ensure the, the, mo the, the best stewardship of the resources that will be invested in the reconstruction of the island. You mentioned um, La Junta in your earlier response, and I know we're, we're, we're going rapid fire here, but um, you know, just curious to hear from you. I mean, I know you're no stranger to, to, to criticizing the, the Fiscal Oversight Management Board. Um, what are you currently involved in to, to get rid of, of the Fiscal Control Board? Well, the uh, Fiscal Control Board has uh, uh, imposed uh, all sorts of cuts and services on everything from uh, pensions to uh, many other 
uh, austerity measures and the people of uh, Puerto Rico, uh, we want, you know, we just, I mean, I happen to think that uh, paying off that debt is totally unreasonable and unrealistic if we want to see the island prosper again in the future. Uh, you know, bondholders have been driving this agenda. Uh, uh, Wall Street has had immense say over uh, the creation of the board, the administration of the board, and of course, the imposition of this these debt obligations. I don't think that they're sustainable. We've got to uh, continue to exert ourselves to ensure that there is transparency, that we eliminate any conflicts of interest, and then reckon with the question about whether or not these debts are payable or if they should be canceled or forgiven if the island is to have any chance of uh, getting back on its feet and seeing an economy that's going to be thriving, putting people back to work and providing the essential services that people on the island need from healthcare to education, to their ability to retire and have pensions to enjoy in the golden years of their lives. And what we're saying is that critical stakeholders in civil society should include community leaders, neighborhood organizations, local nonprofits, unions, small businesses in Puerto Rico to oversee the federal relief efforts. And of course, this idea about building back better should also be done in consultation with those uh, actors in Puerto Rican society. We've been working with uh, the Puerto Rican agenda here in Chicago, with the Puerto Rican Cultural Center on the island, with organizations like Oxfam and many policy experts on the island to really explore what are the best ways that reconstruction of the island should be about. There's two current acts right now in, in Congress that are hoping to address Puerto Rico's status issue. Why did you choose to support the PR Self-Determination Act as opposed to the Puerto Rico Statehood Admissions Act? For quite a few decades, I've watched with uh, great interest uh, and as uh, an observer, uh, the plebiscites that have been held on the island since the 50s. And none of those plebiscites, uh, in my opinion, have had the standing, the credibility, or have created the consensus to uh, convince uh, people on the island or in Congress to move forward. As a matter of fact, none of those plebiscites have ever had the backing of the U.S. Department of Justice uh, the uh, Puerto Rico Self-Determination Act introduced by Representatives Velasquez of New York and Ocasio-Cortez of New York, which I uh, am going to support, uh, would essentially uh, provide for the election of uh, state uh, convention uh, delegates uh, to participate in such a process that would pose the questions of political options for the island. It doesn't predetermine either statehood or uh, Estado Libre Asociado uh, or independence. It keeps all of those options open, including the possibility of new uh, options that people have begun to put forth. Uh, we believe that uh, the 
uh, a permanent negotiating committee would be in place that would keep all of these options viable before a vote of any kind takes place. These are the steps that have never been taken with respect to a plebiscite. And again, it doesn't rule out any of the political options that the people of Puerto Rico uh, would have the opportunity to chime in on what the future should be. We just think that it would have more consultation, more credibility and standing, and that would probably result in a larger participation, more democratic with a small d participation of Boricuas on the island in deciding the future fate and status of Puerto Rico. Super happy to see you being in support of a more democratic, what seems to be a more democratic process with the PR Self-Determination Act. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about, and as we wrap up our time together, shifting gears away from you know legislation in Puerto Rico and more towards like the future of the Democratic Party. I was reading an In These Times article that uh, was an article about you, actually, um, and uh, they had mentioned how you, know, you had uh, some some thoughts, a little bit of pushback on this idea from many centrist Democrats that. Um, embracing bold progressive stances uh, cost Democratic seats in the past election this past November. Um, can you expand a little bit why you disagree with, with statements like that? Two uh, Democrats, uh, when we were trying to figure out what all happened and what led to uh, the loss of uh, a number of seats in our majority, uh, Democratic majority in the House, uh, some centrist Democrats put forth the proposition that we had lost seats because members were running and uh, uh, holding up, defunding the police and closing up uh, to socialist policies as the reason for those losses. Uh, I don't know one member of Congress who ran on such a platform. Um, you know, we ran on very specific things and policy proposals that we continue to fight for in the U.S. Congress. So my position was that you can't make those assumptions without unpacking all of the factors that were at play in these elections. So uh, I said that uh, they were mistaken in their assumptions. We had not gone through an evaluation process. We still haven't. We are going through such a process to objectively understand what happened. But I think that if we continue to deliver on the types of things that working people need in our country, like the Biden rescue plan, that people are going to respond uh, very concretely because they're seeing a change in their lives. Through this bill alone, for example, we're going to reduce poverty by about one third. We're going to cut child poverty almost by half. Once people see and experience what living out of poverty is going to be like, I think it's going to draw a lot more support for those policies. And I think as we undertake our work in a Build Back Better plan, also known as an infrastructure bill, those are the types of initiatives that are going to bring 
opportunities to people to have good jobs, to participate in job training programs, rebuild our infrastructure, get rid of the leaded piping that is still that delivers uh, water to too many houses and even public schools in our uh, city and in our you know other municipalities across the metro region. Cities and states don't have the funding to do this. The federal government can. And what we do is we uh, address problems that are large, that can put many people to work, that can demonstrate good progress, like new housing, better transit, uh, new jobs being created, uh, installing uh, broadband so that people both in cities and in rural areas have access and connectivity to the rest of the world. Those are the kinds of things that the American people want. And I believe that as we undertake those types of policies, that will help us reduce the amount of political polarization, uh, the attacks of misinformation and distortion of realities and the types of polarization that gave us the events of January 6th, the despicable events of January 6th that were assembled and led by Donald Trump, the biggest threat to democracy that our country has experienced uh, since uh, the War of 1812, uh, including uh, the, war, the, the Civil War in our country. So uh, when we talk about policies that uh, make a difference in people's lives, I think the American people will respond. And that's how we can get to a better place where there's more civility, where people trust information and where people are paying attention to objective facts and not alternative facts and how we can reestablish trust and a credible democratic debate about our future. Looking at the the future of the Democratic Party, a lot of people will point to the squad members as being the the future of, of the party. Um, not everybody, but some uh, a good portion of people. Um, how would you how would you define your relationship with the squad in, in Congress? Of course, that's. Represented by Anna Presley, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, the, uh, Jamal Bowman, that group is growing. I mean, do you consider yourself a, as part of the squad? And, and if, if not, why not? They're my allies. Uh, they're who I caucus with. Uh, they're some of the people that I have uh, the closest uh, relationships uh, in Congress. And I think they also represent the future. They are the force that is reviving democracy, that is giving young people a reason to get involved politically, to come out and vote, uh, to take leadership positions in their communities, and yes, to run for office as well. That's the future. And that's what I've been focusing on here in the Chicagoland area, city and suburbs over the past five years, building that bench of progressive leaders, building their skill sets, uh, exposing them to political action and political activism. They all don't have to run for office or be politicians, but they can have skill sets about public policy, uh, about how to run campaigns, how to run uh, strategic thinking uh, and 
movement and be the leaders in nonprofit organizations as well. So I consider them my allies. I am an unabashed progressive. I am a little more seasoned only because of my age and my experience. They let me hang with them. Uh, They are my uh, allies. I love them. And uh, of course, uh, we have much in common because most of the legislation that we advance and uh, vote on in the U.S. Congress, all of us vote uh, to a great degree, almost in unison. That's really interesting because I'll admit when I was seeing a lot of the squad get headlines, I was like, "Ah, where's Chewy at? We're growing yeah. the bench and yeah. uh, we're doing the work and the the trust and the relationships are there. So Good. I, I'm a part of that team without yeah. doubt. I just wanted to ask, end on a lighter note, we ask all of our guests what they're obsessed with. What are you <laughs> obsessed with right now? And you can't say public service, that's cheating. So <laughs> unrelated. <laughs> no, no, I, li- I live I live a real life. Uh, I oh. love <laughs> jazz. I love Latin jazz music uh, from the Caribbean, from uh, Mexico, from Central and South America. Uh, uh, that's what I'm, I'm obsessed with it. Every chance that I get, I uh, tune in. I support public radio. I'm one of the owners of those radio stations because I send my little contribution in. But I'm also um, a, a runner, uh, an enthusiastic runner. I'd like to think that it's changed my life almost 10 years ago. I ran three Chicago marathons. I can't run forever. So I'm also transitioning to become a, a better gardener. Um, many people who will see, you know, this podcast are going to recognize that in my little patch in my backyard, mm-hmm. uh, I spend a lot of time cultivating uh, everything from tomatoes and uh, chiles, uh, you know, to uh, 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 berenjena, uh, eggplant, uh, a variety of uh, vegetables uh, that we grow in uh, the backyard. Uh, and then, of course, uh, I... Uh, you know, learn from uh, my mom, uh, from my wife and other friends, uh, try to delve into cooking. So hi, catch me uh, making uh, pasteles uh, or tamales. Uh, and I plan to focus in uh, and refine my coquito making skills as well. <laughs> so um, I-, I love spending time at home. Uh, with family and uh, friends. And uh, we're going to try to show off and polish off some of our acquired recent abilities and share them with everyone so that everyone partakes a little bit more and overcomes any phobias that they may have about cooking or gardening or things like that. One make it a little easier. And you always do that, I think, when you have some fun with it and always music in the background. Quick bonus question. This is a listener question. I saved it for the end because I think it's a little ridiculous, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And you've probably been asked this so many millions of times. Pero you are known for that stash, Congressman. Like that is like I have a shirt that has your mustache on it. Not even your face, just your name and the mustache and people know. Right. Especially here in Chicago. Um, Yes. Are we ever going to see you with a beard? Like, is it is it you've had that stash for so long? I mean, why the stash over the beard? Beats are in. Well, look, uh, I, I haven't shaved my mustache since I was 14 years old. Chacho. I've trimmed it. Oh uh, you know, I only trim it. I mean, you have to, I'm very ethical about this only with small tijeras, with the small scissors. And I take good care of it. It's my signature. Okay. If I shaved my mustache or shaved accidentally 
too much of it, mm-hmm. people would not recognize me. So it's my existence and I take really good care of it. Uh, the beard thing, I tried it when I was younger. It wasn't what I thought it would be. You know, not everyone can grow a good looking beard. So mine was not to my liking. It was kind of scraggly. So I stopped trying and I stuck with what worked and the stash has worked pretty well for me. All right. No, it has. It's definitely paid off. Um, Do you use anything in the mustache to keep it like smooth or anything? You said you trim it, but do you put any like beard oil or anything in there? No, 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 it doesn't. It hasn't asked for anything. Uh, You know, I probably put a little cream on it because it comes off. Right. Uh, You know, to keep my uh, my skin a little bit moist. But other than that, uh, you know, uh, nothing special. Uh, and it's been it's been a great ally. I, I can only dream to have a stash like that. Okay, Congressman, you've been super generous with your time. How can people keep yes. up with you after this episode? Uh, absolutely. So if you uh, want to get on my Twitter account, I just go to uh, Rep Chewy Garcia, and uh, my uh, email address is chewygarcia.house.gov. Again, ChewyGarcia.house.gov. And again, my Twitter handle is at RepChewyGarcia. Look forward to hearing from folks. All right, Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia. Gracias for being on the Paseo podcast today. Appreciated having you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure. All right. Until next time. Adios. Buenas. Adios. Hasta pronto. Thanks to Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia for coming on the show today. And thank you all for listening to this bonus episode of the podcast. As a reminder, you can watch our interviews with Chuy on our YouTube channel later tonight. Just type in Paseo Podcast and we'll pop right up. Stay tuned tomorrow for our conversation with professor of law at Iowa University and scholar of labor and employment law, Cesar Rosado Marsan. We're going to talk to him about the Jones Act, labor law, unions, and the unionization efforts at the Amazon warehouse in Alabama. We're pretty fired up about these topics, so we're excited to welcome Cesar to the show to give us a little crash course on each of them. As always, if you want to pitch a story idea, nominate yourself or someone else for an interview, or share a news story you'd like us to discuss on the show, visit our website, paseomedia.org, to do just that. See you tomorrow, everybody. Cuídate.